right, a couple of places I would like for you to turn today in our reading of God's Word. First, of course, will be Deuteronomy 25 as we travel continually through this book together today. And the other place I would have you to turn with me is in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 27. And we will be examining uh, verses 24 through 26. So, these will be two places I'll have you turn today. And lastly, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. We will end our uh, time of examination of God's Word at the Suffering, service, uh, suffering Servant Discourse this morning in Isaiah uh, 53. So, today's sermon taken from Deuteronomy 25 and examining the first four verses therein is a sermon that I have entitled The Imago Dei or The Image of God. The Image of God. And as I was studying for this particular sermon, I began to think about the society that we live in today. Not just in the United States, not just in Western culture, but globally. And it seems that humanity has taken up the mantle of justice or protection of human rights. It seems like everywhere you turn there's a cry for some type of, of justice to be, to be done and, and equality and those type, to, those type things are, are raised in our culture around us today. Distorted as they may be, there is a sense of oughtness in the way that the human being looks at one another today. These are things that we ought to do as humans. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. We ought not to cut off our brother in the grocery line. We ought not to do this or that. For a good demonstration of oughtness, may I suggest not only the Scripture, but may I suggest to you the um, C.S. Lewis's book uh, called Mere Christianity. But he talks about the morality that is instilled with every human being and this sense of oughtness that we all share together as, as, as human beings. There is a sense of we ought to treat one another with dignity in this way. And it seems to be permeated through the thread of society. And as I mentioned already, it is very, very distorted. And so, like a laser focus, I want to look at human worth human dignity, and as we ask human worth, human dignity, human identity, where or who do we go to to turn for truth? And what do we turn to for truth? And the answers, God's Word. We go to the Bible to find the answers of human worth and identity, but more importantly, we go to the Scripture, the Word of God, for God's exaltation. And so, we tend to read the Bible with this sense of, let's call it for our purposes this morning, the yearbook mentality. We often read the Bible with this yearbook syndrome. Let me ask you this. Whenever you got your senior yearbook, some of us, that might be a little bit longer than others. Whenever you got your senior yearbook and you got it in your hands, what is the first thing you did when you got your hands on your yearbook? 
You turned and found yourself. If you're like me, you drew mustaches and beards on everybody, but that's just what we did. But you would turn and you would find yourself to make sure that the photographer represented you right. Hopefully you got a proof of those pictures a little bit before they went into the yearbook, but you made sure that the lighting was right and they, they portrayed you accurately. Then you would go through all the extracurricular activities, even if you were not even in those clubs, and you would say, well, maybe I'll catch a glimpse of myself in the background or see if I can find glimpses of myself. Many of us read the Bible in that same exact way. We look for ourselves first. And that, my friends, is the number one fallacy when reading the Word of God. We jump right in and we look for ourselves in, instead of looking for God. First, I want to see the author of the Scriptures, God Himself. And then I want to see what He has to say about me, an old wretched sinner. I want to find out what God has to say about me, but only, only after I have searched the Scriptures to find out what God says about Himself. And I think we have that reversed. We jump right in. What does this say about me? We bypass all the omnis that are exalted in Scripture about God being all-present and all-knowing and in all places, all-powerful. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus addressed two disciples about the canon of Scripture at least the Old Testament closing of God's Word, the rule of Scripture. The evangelist Luke records in this interaction between these two disciples, Luke 24 and verse 27, Jesus said this to the two disciples walking. He said, The beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures or the writings, these are the things concerning himself. The Word of God is about the Word made flesh. The Word of God is about Jesus. But the Bible also is very accurate about the topic of anthropology and what that has to say about the human condition and spirituality. So today's sermon will be on the topic of human dignity and the concept or the truth of the Imago Dei or the image of God. And let me just go ahead and give you a little bit of a shadow towards the end that the image of God for you and I today is to be conformed and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. That is our goal for the image of God. There's no better advocate in the Bible. There's no better advocate for human rights than the God of the Christian Scriptures. You will not find a better advocate for the protection of women, for the protection of children, than the Lord Jesus. You will not find a better advocate for marriage, for love, for flourishing than the Lord Jesus. And so with that introduction, let's stand together and let's read God's precious Word together. Take it from Deuteronomy. I'm going to read these first four verses, then we'll pray. Again, the title of this sermon today is taken from Genesis chapter 1. 27 and 26 and 27, the image of God, the Imago Dei. So let's read together. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 25. If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes will be given to him, but no more. 
At least if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother will be degraded in your sight. Then verse 4, this oddity of a verse kind of pops out, at least at first reading, that says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Speak to us through it today. As we navigate through the pages of Scripture, speak to us about who we are in Jesus, that we have been created with dignity. The Father, but our nature is fallen. So we, we need a resurrection. Lord, we need to be brought to life in Jesus. And we pray it now in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I am going to go ahead and kind of lay some cards out on the table. And don't hear me saying this by way of manipulation or putting a guilt trip on anyone here today, but I believe by the end, I was, I was in here kind of going over some sermon notes, and man, I, I, almost, I almost thought that I was going to be Pentecostal for a little bit. And that's nothing about the expositor or the preacher before you, but it's the, just the sheer power of the Word of God. And so by the end of this sermon, I hope that every one of us gets the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us and that we are laid transparent and bare before Him today. The words that we just read in, De in Deuteronomy are actually a continuation of last week's sermon on on divorce and the celebration of marriage. And we kind of ended on that. We wanted to celebrate what God is doing in and through marriage and how the marriage is really a representation of Christ and His, and his church and how eternal security is probably the best illustration of, of the marriage between Christ and, and, and us, His church, the bride. Now, we find that there are laws concerning divorce and remarriage. There's the idea of making pledges and business decisions and dealings, all of this was part of living in godly community one with another. But today is a continuation of these laws. And in chapter 25, you have a portion that deals with what to do when marrying a wife of a brother who has died childish, a, a child, childless, a woman who acts indecently in public. If you were to look through chapter 25, you'll see exactly what this indecent act in public detailed how to handle business transactions, false weights, how to handle scammers, how to deal with the Amalekites, that, uh, the very last portion of that, how to deal with, with them. But what you'll find is even at that last command, even at that last command, the law is in effect by the sovereignty of God. And because these people, the Amalekites, and those in Canaan were a threat to the livelihood of Israel and to the covenant that God had issued. And the issue that we share, the, that we harbor sometimes, is when we find in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, where God has told Moses to go wipe out a people group. What we fail to forget is that these people are not standing by idly and innocently. And in this culture, everyone was involved in some way in the act of war. And some might say there are no innocent victims. But my main concern, my main point will be focused around these first four verses that we read that speaks of the protection and the lifting up of the dignity of humanity. So my first point for us this morning will be 
when we do not get what we deserve. And actually, that can work both ways. When we don't get what we deserve, in theological terms, it's called grace or even mercy. We can combine the two. Grace and mercy, when we don't get what we deserve. Or we can say in the other realm, it is when we act like a childish brat, thinking that we are entitled to something and we don't get it. In verse 1 it says, If there's a dispute between the men and they come into court and the judges decide between them acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Just hold that point right there for a second. So there's a dispute between these men. They're brought into the court. And because we are fallen people, and because we are not perfect in any way, shape, or form, no matter how spiritual we think we might be, how far advanced in our walk with the Lord we might be, how polished we might think that we are be that we are towards sainthood. We are not perfect. And we will have disappointments. We will have arguments. We will have disputes one with another. Even in the life of the church. I know that's hard to believe in today's culture. But there are people that will make you mad, they'll make you upset. They get on your nerves. They might do some things that you don't like. But that isn't an excuse to distance yourself or to treat them any lower than anyone else. And in a court of law, and these sentences specifically, when the core of that judicial system is an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, the common pronouncement of judgment was that of scourging. This was a place where the preacher would say, thank God for the grace of our Lord, the Mosaic Law presented two important boundaries that punishment should and would be executed in the presence of a judge instead of being inflicted in the privacy of one's home. We see this in the Gospel accounts with Jesus being taken and arrested by the cover of nightfall. That they were to be in front of the court and not some private meeting. And then we find the number of stripes that are to be administered, which we will speak to later on. Even in our modern courts today, there's this notion of innocent until proven guilty. But why do we reverse this in the life of the church where it is guilty until proven innocent? We are fast to pick up stones. We are fast to pronounce guilt and shame upon our brothers and sisters who have fallen by the wayside. Now, see, when there is no corruption in the system, when there is no corruption, when everything is functioning as it should, judges can rightly discern between the guilty and the innocent. In verse 2 it says, The guilty man deserves to be beaten if he deserves to be scourged or, or with stripes. The judge will cause him to lay down in front of the assembly and to be beaten in the presence with a number of stripes in a proportion of his offense. Now these laws, let me remind you, are in place in order to keep individuals from being overly beaten or overly judged. They are in place, even in this primitive system, to protect the image of God. In other words, the punishment meets the crime. 
We find in Leviticus 19 the scourging or beating of a man that judgment pronounced early on in, in the book of Leviticus. But here's the scenario. Two people stand before the judges or the elders and they decide if the defendant is guilty of the crime. The guilty, if the crime is not one of punishable of death, would be beaten. The person would lay down before the court and receive his lashes from a whip. There would have been four types of death to criminals. The four types under Jewish or Hebrew law were number one, stoning, number two, strangulation, burning, or slaying with the sword. Those that are not as severe, where the, where the offense was not as bad, they would be beaten or striped. Now, there's an ancient uh, Hebrew text. It's not canonical and it's not inspired, but it, it helps us historically. There is a Hebrew document called the Hilkot Sanhedrin. And it speaks of the violations that would lead to a whipping. It tells us that there are 207 infractions that would lead a person be, to be beaten in this fashion. 207 infractions. They would lay down on the floor. The Jews would gather around them and they would be beaten in front of the judge. And the third, on, the, on, the, uh, on every third stroke... There was a person that was standing next to the judge. And on every third stroke, a person would call out saying, Smite! As to not go over the prescribed 40 lashes. As Paul says, 40 lashes save one minus one. Depending on his crime, it would determine how many lashes he would receive. Now... We're reading this through Western eyes and we're trying to think how this correlates to the gospel and how do we get to Jesus from a person laying down in front of a judge being beaten or whipped. And we're, we're thinking about this in our Western eyes and we're saying it's, it's crude. But even in this way, it shows that they wanted to give the person some dignity and not treat them as a dog or an animal. Yes, even in this primitive way, they were trying to honor that God made man in His image and to not treat them as a dog or something less than human. That is, until we get to the person of Jesus in the gospel accounts. As I was reading and studying this particular, this particular set of laws, I could not shake this unmistakable parallel between Jesus and these whippings. I hope that you were thinking of Jesus as I was reading through them and what our Lord suffered. So hopefully you turn with me in your Bible at the beginning to Matthew chapter 27. So let me read that very quickly for us. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 24. This is our Lord Jesus being delivered uh, over to Pilate. And Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing from the crowds, but there was a riot that was beginning. His clamoring and rioting began. And he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. You do it. And all the people answered said, His blood be on us and our children. Man, what a true statement that is. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be Crucified, And some would say, of course, that this, this beating with the whip contained metal and bone and all that within the whip. And so 
to think about what our Lord even went through here. So hopefully you know the narrative. If you're part of the drama in any way, shape, or form, you know this part. Hopefully you know it very well. Hopefully you are well, well aware of this narrative in the Gospel accounts. Jesus is delivered up before Pilate by the chief priests and by the elders and the ones according to Deuteronomy that should have been administering the judgment anyway. They should have been the one that administered the judgment, the beating, the scourging here. The ones in Deuteronomy who should have been saying, yes, he's, he's false, he's, he's not who he says he is and should have been administering judgment, but they did not want just a mere beating. If you look at the previous verses, chapter 27, right at the end of verse 1, it says, they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They didn't want him beaten. They didn't want him scourged. scourged. They wanted him dead. So now... Jesus stands before Pilate and is, quote-unquote, judged. They bring out Barabbas, and the crowd decided who would go free, Jesus or Barabbas. And we're reading the narrative as with fresh eyes, and we're saying, well, to be sure the crowd would pick Jesus to go free, that is this dramatic irony. We already know that Barabbas is going to be set free, but if we're reading it with fresh eyes, we would say, well, to be sure, they're going to set Jesus free. I mean, Barabbas is a notorious criminal, an overly zealous zealot. Barabbas represents every one of us in our, in our sinful state. And then the crowd cried out for the release of Barabbas and for the detaining, for the beating, and the, for the crucifying of Jesus. And then Pilate tries to wash his hands of the matter of the whole merits, he tries to wash his hands, but we know that that will not work in God's grand scheme of eternal true justice. And one day, Pilate is going to stand before the Lord Jesus. And one day, Pilate is going to be judged, and Jesus is not going to wash his hands, but will judge with true justice, just like every one of us in here will stand before the Lord, and he will judge us according to his righteousness. They released Barabbas and delivered Jesus to be scourged. At this point in the gospel narrative, they would not exceed the 40 lashes, but they treated our Lord like a dog. And without going over the details of every strike on our master's back that ripped flesh from it, we can say emphatically, and we can say 100%, and we can play, say with certainty that Jesus is innocent and without sin and without offense. Now there's the parallel with what we didn't what what we didn't we didn't deserve that our Lord would lay his life down. We didn't get what we deserved, which would have been hell and separation from the goodness of God forever and ever. When we should have been left as dead men walking, the walking dead, in our sins, Jesus laid down his own life. And my friends, this is the beautiful and yet bitter part of the gospel. That the precious, perfect, sinless Savior had to die for our sins. It is a difficult thing to put our head around, and yet it is the sweetest story ever told. And so these people who stood before the judges in Deuteronomy 25 were probably guilty of their crimes, and yet Jesus is without sin. So, keeping on the theme of the Imago Dei, the image of God, they treated Jesus like a dog. They treated him as lower than human. 
which is quite ironic because Jesus is the true represent, representation of what it means to be truly human. If you want to see what it means to be truly human, look at Jesus. The only person to ever live to show us and to live a life of being perfectly human, and yet here they are treating him a little lower than human, like a dog. The bitter and sweetness of the gospel. These were no people of the book. These were no people of the law. They were hypocrites, and Jesus was right. They were like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And if I could tell you anything from this first portion of Deuteronomy, I, I would tell you to, to grab a hold of this one point of application. Are you, you hear me? Grab a point of this piece of application. Grab a hold of it. Take hold of the depth. Take hold of the beauty of the gospel and live it out and preach it to yourself every single day when you look in the mirror that Jesus laid down his life for me. Preach it to yourself every day. Grab a hold of this point of application. Take a hold of the beauty and the depth of the gospel. And 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself, Jesus, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then it says, by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds we are healed. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 3 says, Forty stripes may be given to him, but not no more, lest if one goes on to beat him with more stripes than these, that your brother will be defiled or degraded in, in your sight. Now, when most people read this and they think, by his stripes we are healed, they think of Isaiah 53. I hope you do. Something that they might hear in a healing crusade. By his stripes... I would be healed of, of my ailments, or my cancer, or my leg, or my back, my eyesight. But the true healing that is spoken of through these stripes, the true healing that Jesus bore by his stripes is his substitutionary atonement that he took our place and that we gave him our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Where we should have laid down before the judges but with our sins laid bare, Jesus took our place. Where we should have split hell wide open, Jesus stepped in. Jesus conquered hell by his resurrection. Where we should have suffered the lashes, our Lord stepped in. So look at verse 3, if you will. As we have read already, the maximum number of stripes would be limited to 40. If you remember what was laid out in the law, if you remember what was laid out in the commandments of our Lord, you will remember that Israel was to be different from Egypt and from the nations around them. They were to be a separate people, a distinct people, a holy people. They were to be different. They were to be distinct in some way. So God gave them laws that reflected His character and nature and said, Be holy as I am holy. 
They were to be distinct. And in Egypt and Turkish and the Chinese people and rulers, they would often beat one until they caused death or they would cause lameness of life. They would, they would beat people until they were crippled. They didn't care about protecting the image of, of God or the image bearer. They didn't care for those things. And the Jews were remarkable in following the law. They did not want to miscalculate these stripes. There was a limit that was prescribed in the Word under inspiration of, of God. Do not exceed these 40 stripes. And so they took very good care of keeping within this, even when they had these three cords that they would use and leather thongs that they would use together. And, and they would hit 13 strikes to get this 39 strikes. The Apostle Paul says something very familiar in the book of Corinthians. In fact, the second letter to the Corinthians, verse 11 and verse 24, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. And if you do the math on that, the Apostle Paul, by the time that he wrote 2 Corinthians, the second letter to Corinthians, what we call the second letter, the Apostle Paul received 195 lashes when he wrote this second letter to the church at Corinth. We might hear the expression, he or she was beaten to within an inch of their life, and very similar is what we see happening with these 40 lashes. And one might ask, well, what is the significance of these 40 lashes? Why isn't it 20? Why isn't it 30 to be exceeded? Why, is it, why does it stop at, let's say, tw uh, 39? Why, why do we stop there? And I believe it has to do with coming out of Egypt, and I believe it has to do with not humiliating the person. Part of this, to go 48 lashes, was humiliation. And some would say that would kill a person, but I don't think that's it at all. Some would say, well, if you go 40, you kill somebody. But there are historical records of people that were beaten more than 40 lashes and survived. And some might even conjecture that there was a connection to the Egyptians as they came out of Egypt. There is record in, Egypt, in Egyptian records of people receiving 100 lashes. God says, you're to be different. You're not going to beat the person to a place of unrecognition as a way to protect the image bearer, to protect from complete humiliation. God would even teach them on the beast of the field as well. Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Upon reading this in Deuteronomy, as it's isolated in Deuteronomy, it seems out of place. And the Apostle Paul later on uses that to, to say, hey, as people are ministers, you need to feed them. They need to eat. They need to feed their family. Treat your ministers, treat your overseers well. Don't muzzle them when they're trying to do the Lord's work. Don't muzzle them when they need to eat for themselves. And it seems out of place, but the goal of the 39 stripes is to protect the image bearer from humiliation. It makes sense then. Now, in Judea, there was these large grain uh, uh, places where they would, uh, where they were uh, kind of 
uh, beat the grain down by the feet of the ox, and they would go round and round, and they were yoked together. And as they went round and round, day after day, in this wide open space, and these what they called threshing floors, the animals were allowed freely to reach down and pick up a mouthful of something to eat as they were walking by. And, and as they chose to do so, they would reach down, grab a big mouth, chew it up, and keep on, and keep on working. And so, it's introduced in the law of Moses. It's introduced again as we find it in 1 uh, Timothy 5, and we see it there too. So, to respect the ox that is working by feeding him, if we respect the ox, if we respect the animal, how much more are we to show respect to God's crowning jewel of creation, humankind, by showing respect even when they are guilty of a crime? even when they are guilty of a crime, even when your brothers and sisters do wrong in, the, in your sight, or we are to treat them with respect and honor and gentleness and peace, always pointing them to Christ. So, once again, I was reading this portion of Scripture. I could not help but to think of what our what our Lord took as He took the beating on Himself. And I want to say this before we close, that the image of God for the Christ follower today is to be conformed in our rebirth to the image of Jesus. Who, by the way, is the image of God? Jesus said this. What did Jesus say? He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. To be Christian, you know what it means to be Christian? I know that term sometimes a day carries sometimes a derogatory uh, tent to it, even today. But to be Christian as prescribed in God's Word, to be a Christian means that, to be a little Christ. That we're a little Christ. Did you know what that word meant? To be little Christ, to represent Jesus well as we are being shaped and conformed to His image and likeness. What I want you to do, I want you to appreciate what the Lord went through and to know that the stripes that Jesus bore was part of His redemption plan. It was, to, it was to heal our sins. It wasn't to heal your bunion. It wasn't to heal your leg. It wasn't to straighten up your back. It wasn't to heal you from COVID. It wasn't to clear you up from cancer. Now, can God do that? Absolutely. And sometimes we see God healing this way and we give Him praise when we do. The healing is not these things in our physical body. The stripes that he bore is a precursor to the cross. And as it is a precursor to the cross, it was a precursor to the tomb. And the tomb was a precursor to the resurrection. And by his stripes, we move towards healing of our sinfulness as Jesus defeated hell, death, and the grave and stands triumphantly. We are healed from our own sinfulness. I'm going to end on Isaiah 53. I asked you if you would turn there. And as I finish reading, I'm just going to pray. And as I'm praying, we'll ask our musicians to come and, and to lead in our in your invitation. I'm going, to, I'm going to read Isaiah 53. I think this bridges this all together, Isaiah 53. I'm not going to expound on it. I'm not going to give you another three-point sermon from Isaiah 53. You're probably saying, thank God. 
I'm going to read Isaiah 53, and I'm going to pray. And as I do so, I want you to come and pray at the altar. Just give thanks to God. Give thanks to Him for what He has done in offering salvation and giving us freedom in Jesus' name, giving us His righteousness and we ourselves taken upon our own filthy rags in front of our Lord. So let's do this, Isaiah 53. Let's turn in our Bibles and let's read together. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was not despised and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep that have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led through the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the Lord of the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen and amen. Lord, we are...